can't make it to the Global Genes 2019 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit this year? Don't worry. You can stream the event live September 19th and 20th from the comfort of your own computer. Go to globalgenes.org to register for free for the live stream. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Jennifer and Tracy Van Houten lost two children in less than two years to CLN2 Batten disease, a rare genetic neurodegenerative condition that slowly robs children of their abilities before taking their lives. The Van Houtens founded Noah's Hope to create awareness, raise money to fund research, and eliminate policy barriers to bringing therapies to patients. Despite their loss, they continue to advocate and push for treatments. At this year's Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit in San Diego, September 18th to 20th, the two will be honored with a 2019 Rare Champion of Hope Award for their advocacy work. We spoke to the Van Houtens about CLN2 Batten disease, their advocacy work, and their ability to fight on after the loss they suffered. Jennifer, Tracy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. We're going to talk about your journey in the world of rare disease, your work as advocates, and what you've learned along the way. Let's start with CLN2, though, a form of Batten disease. For listeners not familiar with the condition, can you explain what it is and how it progresses? Yeah, so CLN2 Batten disease is a, uh, it is an inherited genetic disease. It is a autosomal recessive lysosomal storage disease. Um, it's caused by the CLN2 gene. Uh, what it does is it causes an enzyme, TPP1, not to be made in the body. As a result, waste builds up in the cells. Those cells die and various problems start to happen. So it's a rapidly progressing neurodegenerative disease. Seizures are typically the first symptom, usually beginning between the ages of two and four. Other symptoms progress, including language delay, language regression, ataxia, myoclonus. Uh, the children lose their vision, their ability to speak, their ability to eat, walk. Um, I guess you could say it's sort of like uh, combined less and Alzheimer's, adding that to a three-year-old child. T- children typically succumb to the disease between the ages of 8 and 12 years old. You were thrust into the rare disease world when your son Noah started developing symptoms. What happened and what did it take to get a diagnosis? Well, Noah started having seizures in December of 2007. And between December of 2007 and January of 2008, we had a series of doctor visits with various neurologists around the Chicagoland area and ER visits because, you know, seizures were new to us. We didn't know how to manage them, and we just needed some clinical support. Um, And then in January of 2008 is when our friend 
um, put us in touch with the uh, chief of pediatric neurology at Duke Children's, and he um, assessed Noah and suggested that we bring him back for an evaluation. So in late February, my mom and I drove down to Duke with Noah, and he was in the hospital for 13 days. Um, I, I don't know, remember how many tests we did, but the doctor ended up testing him in two different ways for Batten disease because he, he felt like he was on that track. Um, and so after we returned home in March, we received a call on St. Patrick's Day with the diagnosis from a blood, a blood, um, blood report and a skin biopsy. And what were you told about the condition and and Noah's prognosis? We were told, you know, what Tracy just mentioned, that it is rapidly progressing and it, he'll, Noah would continue to get worse. He would lose his ability to walk. He was walking at the time. His ability to eat, he was eating at that time. And he would likely die before his 12th birthday. Um and there wasn't much in terms of research or clinical trials going on at the time. Noah was, was the oldest of three children. You had twin daughters, Lane and Emily. At what point Correct. did you consider that your other children might also have what is a genetic condition? I think we were so focused on Noah's um, decline Um that, and Lane and Emily were three at the time of Noah's diagnosis at, at five, um, that we, we kind of, it was in the back of our heads, but at the same time, we had just had Lane and Emily into preschool screening, and they both um, showed normal progression um, on the preschool screening, and we didn't do anything until that summer. Um, Tracy kind of came to me and said, we just need to get them checked. We need to know. I'm like, they're fine. They're fine. And we ended up checking them and Emily's came back right away, um, showing that she was unaffected. Um, however, Lane's came back, um, saying that we didn't have enough blood sample on the card and they wanted us to redo it. So then about two weeks after that is when we received her diagnosis, which was exactly five months on August 17th, 2009. She was just three and a half. Lane was actually aware of what Noah was going through. And there was a moment, I know, when she came into your bedroom one morning and was unable to see. What what happened? Well, the, the kids, when they started losing their vision... Um, I think they lost their vision when, you know, looking straight forward. And we learned that they would look side to side um, to try and capture their vision. And I think Lane may have had these kind of pauses in her vision. Um, not so much, you know, total blindness at that point. She was probably about four um, when she said that. And um, it just, it caught us off guard. Um, Noah really never talked about his symptoms. Lane was more... Uh, she was she was a girl. She did she talked about things more. <laughs> so she, I um that that just kind of startled us that she was that aware of of what was going on with her. Yeah, and it was 
at the time, it was, as you can imagine, very disheartening to realize that she was realizing what was happening to her. Um, also, about the same time, I mean, Emily obviously was very worried that uh, this could happen to her. So guiding her through the process of making her understand that uh, she was going to be okay. These were, uh, these were all very challenging and uh, difficult conversations to have. You set up Noah's Hope. What was the vision for the organization when you created it? Well, I think in the early days, we, we realized that there was very little funding going in, either through private foundations or through the NIH, uh, into funding uh, something that could be meaningful as far as a treatment of CLN2 Batten. Uh, we happened to have a, a decent network here in the Chicagoland area and thought we might be able to make a difference. We had lots of friends, family, and community members asking us what they could do to help. Um, so we soon came to the conclusion that we should start a foundation dedicated to research in this disease uh, with the hopes of um, making a meaningful impact and, and possibly being able to uh, get to a treatment uh, for Noah and for Lane. You dove headfirst into the world of advocacy in a very comprehensive way. This includes trying to bring reform to the FDA, helping drug companies structure and enroll clinical trials, funding research. How much of a background in the world of science and drug development and policy and regulation did you have? And, and how did you educate yourselves and prioritize what you needed to do? Well, I think I can speak for both of us in saying that neither of neither of us were particularly well-versed in science. I, myself, in the high school and college, C-plus student at best in scientific endeavors. Uh, but when it's your child, it's uh, all of a sudden it means a lot more. Uh, soon after Noah's diagnosis, and we were informing our friends and family about it, uh, Jen actually had a childhood friend who was working in academic research, and he pulled about, I think it was about 10 years of previous, all the previous academic research in, in bat disease and dropped it off to us in, uh, in a few hefty three-ring binders. Um, so we started reading all we could. We started emailing out to researchers around the world, asking questions. We got involved uh, heavily with uh, the National uh, Patient Advocacy Group, that's the Batten Disease Support and Research Association in Columbus, Ohio. And we started looking at ways we can make an impact. It was, uh, it really was becoming a citizen scientist, reading words, not understanding them, looking them up, uh, having, having conversations with researchers about how different processes uh, in the lysosome uh, and in the brain worked. So it was a, a very quick and in-depth education. With Batten disease, the clock is not your friend. How did the realities of the timeline to develop a treatment figure into the work you were trying to fund? Well, uh, we were actually trying to fund um, multiple shots on goals. Now, we were focused mostly uh, early on. We got connected to the lab of uh, Peter LaBelle and David Sleet out at Rutgers University. 
they'd actually discovered the function of the CLN2 gene years before and we're really working on the low-hanging fruit, which was there's a missing enzyme. Uh, the theory was we could um, synthetically make that enzyme and deliver it back. The project that we had co-funded with others at Rutgers University um, eventually became a program at Biomarin, and that we worked with the company relatively closely, uh, helping them to better understand the patients, um, uh, teaching them about uh, meaningful endpoints, burden of disease, things of this nature. Now, we were very fortunate in that uh, that progressed to a clinical trial. Uh, unfortunately, it was not in time uh, for NOAA and for Lane. They had already progressed past the point of uh, inclusion. That trial did progress through clinical trial, and it was approved by the FDA in uh, April of 2017. And this became the first therapy for any form of bat disease uh, approved, uh, and it was approved both in Europe and here in the U.S. So I think where our mission is now is we have uh, we sort of have that first lifeboat in the water for these kids, and it is making a very meaningful impact to them. So we are starting to look to partner with uh, industry and with academic scientists in looking at other modalities of treatment. Now, whether that be gene therapy, which there is some commercial interest in, uh, we have uh, funded some early work that was licensed on the small molecule side, and we continue to look at other things like ASOs, gene editing, uh, developing uh, tools for our scientists to use, whether those be new new models, making our, our uh, registries and natural histories more robust. There's... There's always more work to do, even after that first therapy is approved. How has NOAA's hope evolved and changed since you first began it, and, and where do you see your opportunity to have the biggest impact today? You know, I, I will speak to our mission. Our mission has always been to fund research and build awareness of batten disease. The only change that we pretty much adapted into that is that we added rare disease into that mission. So, you know, we really want to build awareness in the rare disease community as well. Um, you lost NOAA in 2016 and, and Lane in 2018 to this disease. The rare disease community focuses a lot of its attention on what's necessary to accelerate the discovery and development of therapies. We don't hear a lot about grieving, although this is something that's constant in the community. How much of a challenge has this represented? Ah, boy, that's a... It's, you know, it, it's grieving we have discovered affects our entire family. Not just, you know, Emily and our little daughter Colette and Tracy and I, but, you know, Noah and Lane's grandparents, their aunt and uncles, their cousins, our neighbors, our, you know, our friends that are closest to us. Um, the, we, and I've also learned that, you know, Tracy and I grieve in different ways. And while one might be okay one day, the other one is not. And we just have to, give each other a little bit of space and understanding to be able to get through that moment. 
yeah, it really is a, a journey of peaks and valleys, um, you know, or, or like uh, waves crashing on the shore. You know, you can you can be fine one minute and uh, something can trigger uh, an emotional response and or a memory and uh, we've or milestones. We, yeah, and we've you know we're we've learned and we're still learning on how to take those moments and live in those moments and uh, remember mm-hmm. uh, our children uh, who are very special to us and to to celebrate the fact that they were real motivators for uh, helping bring uh, this first meaningful treatment to, to you know, hundreds and if not someday thousands of patients around the world. I know a number of other advocates look to you both as mentors. What drives you to continue this work today? I mean, I, I always say it's our love for Noah and Lane and because we love them so much, even still, we want to make sure that those that are affected in the rare disease community can have a better quality of life. And we're going to use our resources that we have discovered over the last 10 years to be able to continue that um, that work. And, and it's the way that we can share, um, you know, what Noah and Lane, how they changed our lives. Um, with the rare disease community. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think also, Dan, that, uh, you know, the, the saying goes of, you know, who is given much, much is expected. And while, uh, a very heavy price was, uh, paid by our children and, you know, by us emotionally, we have seen so many doors open to us and to the entire bad disease community, uh, through our journey. And, it it just seems uh, impossible with with knowledge that we have to just let that go by the wayside and not try to advance the cause to next and second generation, third generation treatments to 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 give better and better outcomes to these kids who devour, who to give much better outcomes to these children who deserve far better than the hand they were dealt. Tracy and Jennifer Van Houten, founder of Noah's Hope and Global Genes 2019 Rare Champions of Hope Advocacy Award recipients, thank you both for your time today. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.